Hello, Pine Copper Lime friends, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I publish an article on the Pine Copper Lime website, which features images and maybe a bit more information about the printmaker I'm going to interview. If you want to get in touch, Pine Copper Lime can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and of course at pinecopperlime.com. Not to mention, I'm going to be at the SGCI Vendor Fair this year in Dallas, which as of this podcast is only two weeks away. So make sure to come by, say hello, and get some merch. My guest this week is Keith Sakola. He is a Northern Ute Anishiabe printmaker currently based in the Bay Area. In his printmaking practice, he screen prints large-scale photographs from his family's archive under covers from publications of romanticized tales of early America, often ones which contained warped views on indigenous populations. Thus, he physically and philosophically obscures and overrides these stories with a history from the voice of the subjects. In this episode, we talk about his early life growing up as the son and namesake of a well-known musician, his time as a sponsored skateboarder, and the incredible research he's doing into his own family through this project. This is a really great episode, and Keith has an incredible mind for names, dates, and places. So it's a little bit of a history lesson as well. And just before I hand things over to Keith, I want to let you all know that episode 9 is going to be a little bit different. My guest is Shayla Allery, who's not a printmaker, but a brilliant gallerist who I worked with for five years in a printmaking-specific gallery in Seattle. We cover collecting, authentication, all the sticky wickets of the secondary print market, but I'm also going to do a series of polls for questions over on the Pine Copper Lime Instagram, which Shayla will answer before the episode goes up. So if you've ever had a burning question for a gallerist, now's your chance. Our handle is found at pine.copper.lime. Of course, I'll put a link in the show notes. Give us a follow and be on the lookout for those polls appearing in the story. All right. Now, without further ado, here's Keith. Hi, Keith. How's it going? Uh, I'm good. Uh, doing really well out here in the Bay Area. Sitting here in Oakland, California. It's really nice out. Yeah, I hear that the West Coast has been having quite the mild winter this year. Yeah, no, it's a lot different from when I first got out here. The first winter, and it was it rained almost every single day, and it was super windy. Mm-hmm. But well, lately, it's been it's been a lot of uh, sunshine, so can't complain. Yeah, I definitely can identify with that. When I first moved to Sydney, it was in July, which of of course is their dead of winter. And I think the second or third day I was here it got down below freezing, which was really wow. strange for here. And you know, everyone's plants were dying and all this kind of thing. So now Australia is having this incredible heat wave. Everywhere, too, has been kind of, it's been dry. This last summer, you know, there's so many wildfires in this fall out here in California. Right. And just even back home in my reservation in Utah, when I went back, I experienced the Dollar Ridge fire, and it just was ripping up the whole, like, western United States, and there is definitely drying out, you know, it's it's a problem. It's definitely affecting a lot of countries. Yeah, for sure. So I think that that's a, a good place that I can just sort of ask you maybe to introduce yourself. I actually came across your work 
just on Instagram, whiling away my time on Instagram like we all do. And yeah. I, maybe it was through a post that Kala did about uh, the fellowship that you have there. And I went to your page and I saw your work and I thought, why doesn't everyone know about this person? This is amazing work. And so I featured you on the, the Pine Copper Lime account, which is where I just repost work that I yeah. think is interesting. And it completely I, took off. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it was really, really awesome. Whatever yeah. we did, the algorithm liked it a lot and we were rewarded. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it worked on my end too. Like I ended up getting over a thousand likes and it sort of catapulted me into like a lot more following and then also the algorithm or whatever trend we broke, I guess, kind of getting a little bit more awareness for my uh, yeah. for my postings we, and things, which is good, you know, for overall for the art practice. Definitely. So, we cracked some kind of code. It was really good. And I really appreciate that because like sort of just took the initiative and, and did it and it really worked out, you know, so I really appreciate you sort of taking the time to write something up and research the work. Yeah, definitely. It was it was my pleasure. So that being said, I actually don't really know too much about you or, or too much about your work other than what I've seen on your Instagram or on your website. So yeah. I'm yeah. going into this a little more blind than I usually am with the artists I chat with. If you want, I could kind of just give you some of the, the basics of who I am and where I come from and that would be great. And if you could tell us about your name as well, if you know people call you Keith yeah. or people call you Minnow or who calls you what yeah. and what you prefer and all of that, I'd, I'd love to hear that, that whole story. Yeah. So I could just start by saying I was born in uh, the late 80s, 1988. I was born in the U Indian Reservation, and that's where I'm from, in Fort Duchesne, Utah. It's a Indian Reservation northeast of Salt Lake, and that's about 200 miles from Salt Lake City and kind of on the borders of Wyoming and Colorado. But I was also uh, raised in Phoenix, Arizona with my mom and dad. We we grew up there, so I sort of had like a urban upbringing as well for most of my life, or actually for the better part of my life. It was sort of like this dual upbringing between, you know, reservation life with my family and, and learning that way, but also growing up in the urban settings of Phoenix and suburbs around there. Yeah, and then from there, I kind of just grew up all over the Southwest and ended up getting my undergrad in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the Institute of American Indian Arts in 2012. And then I lived around Colorado for a while in between school and graduate school and things. So I just, I kind of always just kind of tell people I'm a product of the Southwest in a lot of ways, you know. I grew up there. I met a lot of my good friends from IAIA and sort of where I developed my sense of art practice and using my identity to uh, question things with my art and sort of find my aesthetic. And then do you want to tell us a little bit about your name? Because you've got two yeah, listed yeah. On, your, on your work and, and I'm sure there's yeah, a story so, to that. Yeah, um, so my name is Keith Sokola Jr. I'm a, my father is a native musician. He's pretty well known in Indian country all, all across America for some of his hits, he had a hit called Indian Cars and stuff. And Oh, you know, I, um, I, when I was trying to do research on you, I definitely saw him. Yeah, I finally feel like I'm starting to kind of come out on my own. Even though I've been doing my art for a while, it's started to separate from the name and things too and kind of do my own thing. But, um, but so, yeah, I am a junior and I kind of have, you know, that whole legacy of my father and his, and his work. But on his, he's Anishinaabe, so I'm two tribes. I'm 
from the Northern Ute Indian tribe, which is in Fort Duchesne on my mother's side. And then on my father's side, I'm Anishinaabe, uh, Boys Fort Ojibwe, and they're from uh, the territories in Northern Minnesota. Part of rite of passage and a man and a young woman were given uh, Indian names in, in the language of the Anishinaabe. And when I was 17, I uh, was taken up to uh, northern Minnesota to a place called Grand Marais. And um, it's on the north shores of Lake Superior. There we had a ceremony, a naming ceremony with a medicine woman from Rainy River. And um, that's in, on the border of uh, Minnesota and Canada. And she came down to Grand Marais. Um, on the North Shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota, and she had um, a naming ceremony for me, which is, you know, um, a medicine woman that has dreams for you and relays what an animal or a spirit that comes and gives you your name. And uh, she did this ceremony for me when I was 17, and uh, she gave me the name Meno Mashkiki Wishkan. Meno in our language means good. It means in Anishinaabe, it means good. And Mashkiki means medicine. So if you translate that, it means meno mashkiki, means good medicine. And uh, the wishkan doesn't really have any um, English translation, like a hard English translation. It's sort of more just a meaning, like to be around or to see. Mm. So if you, my full name, meno mashkiki wishkan, kind of means good medicine, to be around or to mm. see or, or to know. That's what my name is in the uh, Anishinaabe. And, you know, I was given that name and it, it changed my life a lot when I was 17. You know, there's a lot of things that at a young age, I sort of understood the discipline of what it might take to kind of carry a, a strong name in medicine like that. And, yeah. you know, I still struggled with things, but, you know, I think it, it kind of helped me kind of ground me in a lot of ways to go to school and, you know, get, get right even at, you know, 17 years old and things. So, yeah, I can only imagine that being given something with that kind of weight even, you know, for a 17-year-old kid, you would take it so seriously and really understand this is something that's important. Like, this is something that's that's mine. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, it definitely did. It felt, you know, I'm, I was given medicine from it, you know, like a, something that I carry with me that uh, that's only supposed to be mine throughout life and no one else's. And the lady who gave me the name, her name's uh, Sandra Hunter. And she's sort of like an adopted auntie now, you know, mm. she's like my family now, you know, and, and even though we're not blood, it's like that relation through spirit and medicine. So, you know, I could always kind of rely on her to always guide me in things. And, and even sometimes when things have happened, she's just kind of known like, it's yeah. like this intuition she has over me. So, um, yeah, you know, I think it changed my life a lot. And, it really, at the time, when I was 17, I was a, a skateboarder. You know, I used to ride for this Apache skateboard team in Arizona, and they were based out of San Carlos Indian Reservation. And, and I just remember thinking, like, that's what I want to do is, like, you know, the, to achieve these things I want, it's going to take, like, a sacrifice and really push hard at this. So that I think even though I wasn't so much in art practice at the time, I was around creative people and... Um, you know, I, I at least learned that discipline through the ceremony that, you know, to, at the time it was all about skateboarding. So I just, I devoted all my life, life to that, you know, at the time. And it sort of led me to be artist. And that's what kind of led me to like in college. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I loved skateboarding and sort of the art around it. So I started taking art courses and taking drawing one and, and just sort of learned through that that that's what I love to do too, you know, so. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really fascinating crossover because obviously you've got music, which is its own art. 
through the connection with your father. And then, you know, I always think that movement is, of course, its own art. Because we like to put hierarchies on things. We think that ballet is more art than skateboarding. But, of course, that's bullshit, right? (laughs) I mean, skateboarding, you know, it's technique. It's it's what looks good. It's aesthetic. You know, there's a lot of that sort of same. It's super athletic. Yeah. And, I mean, mean, the aesthetics of it, yeah, what you're doing with your body and the movement and things. Like, you know, I, I kind of grew up off of that more so you know the artistic forms of skateboarding and the creativity like I just would meet so many creative people like people that could draw and paint or you yeah. know do graffiti and or they'd write you know and just so it I think just being around that whole like subculture is what really was influencing me and then being you know American Indian in a urban landscape it's kind of hard to find that common commonality with people. And I think, you know, the subculture of skateboarding and art and music sort of breaks those boundaries a little bit for people, especially people of color and stuff. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. That too, you know, finding, finding your safe space and finding spaces that are for you. Are Accepting. Spaces, yeah. Yeah, sure. absolutely. That's, that's so important. Do you have an exhibition up at the moment? Is that correct? Yeah, there's a show at the Mission Cultural Center in San Francisco. It's called Postcolonial Revenge. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, it came, it sprouted from two uh, two curators that I've kind of had relationship, like um, friendships with, you know, throughout this, my experience here in the Bay, uh, Gilda Posada and um, Dara Katrina. So I kind of knew both the curators and they had me in mind with like, as far as my the vision and the work that I've done with my murals and archive printing and things so they reached out to me and kind of were hoping that I would do a large large scale installation for it um they definitely had that vision and the whole uh idea around like making a show around post-colonial studies and the kind of aftermath of like you know colonialism and what it's had on um you know our identity and sort of you know Mm. our, our stories and narratives as native people and people of color. Yeah. I'm sitting in a, a, a conference room at a, at a local college that's basically empty right now because it's Australia Day today. Yeah. So it seems oh, wow. sort of apt that we're having the post-colonial conversation yeah. today. Yeah. And I think generally speaking, Australia is doing better than the States, you know, in oh, terms wow. of acknowledging the history. In, in Australia, before there's any gathering, they do what they call a welcome to country, mm-hmm. which is, you know, whoever is the master of ceremonies, they acknowledge that the traditional custodians of the land that whatever is happening is happening on. And yeah, just, I mean, an acknowledgement even, like, that's something, I think, so much of Native American history, North American Native people's stories and acknowledgements, you know, just completely erased. And there's a lot of controversy going on right now, especially what's going on with Nathan Phillips in the Catholic high school, I, I believe, you know, and um, everything that happened on the Indigenous Peoples March just, mm-hmm. you know, a week or so ago, you know, there's a lot of movement for people to realize that we have a voice and that these stories are real, that Indigenous peoples really shaped, you know, a lot of the politics yeah, and that, that it's still like a living history, I think. In the general education that, that children get, there's no acknowledgement of the, the presence and the continuation and all of that. It's, 
it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's one of those things where some people can think of natives and there's always sort of that dated time. Your imagery, it's always kind of of a past romantic time, you know, and like a lot's changed since then. I mean, even the story of my youth people, you know, I, I like to try to tell people, you know, we were from Colorado, even though our, our reservations in Utah, uh, the Uinta Ore reservation was a combination of the Utah Utes and the Colorado Utes. So the Uenta part of our of our name, the Uenta Ore Reservation, Uenta refers to all the Utah Utes. And Ore is was the chief of our tribe, the Uncompagre band that I come from. And we were around the Pikes Peak area of Colorado. Like that's where we originated from. And mm. um, we had land, a, a reservation in the late 1800s that was in Colorado that was set aside from us with by Abraham Lincoln and the Uenta Ore Reservation in Utah. But there is a conflict, in, uh, I believe, in 1872, uh, where a lot of northern White River Utes got in conflict with an Indian agent, Nathan Meeker, who was basically policing the tribe, policing the band up north. And eventually they plowed up a, a northern Ute a horse racing track, like a, a place where we'd breed our war mm. ponies and things and trade them and sell them because that was like our monetary value was our horses. When they plowed that up, it created this sense of treachery, and eventually it just boiled over to where, you know, we had a battle, and fortunately Nathan Meeker was killed, and that created a political campaign in Colorado, which was like the Utes must go. And then eventually all the northern bands and the central bands, like where I was from, my family and everything, we were pushed in the Utah to that, mm -hmm. like, or a part of the reservation. So that whole, our ancestral lands in Colorado are completely just, you know, we don't have that access to it. There's still Ute tribes in Colorado, but they've been pushed to the very southern parts of it where they straddle like New Mexico and Arizona. Um, but there's this whole western slope that was once just Ute territory. And it's sort of, you know, the, even that kind of story is long lost, you know, and it was like, I feel like my people have only been on that reservation for only 100 years. So before that, I mean, to us, like in the great timeline, if that's more new to us than ever, that is like that was our way of life that freedom when we left Colorado I mean there's obviously a negotiation that happened that was there's a lot of money involved and right. we were supposed to get paid out obviously for Colorado like millions a lot of the times though the federal government felt that you know native tribes when we were becoming citizens they didn't believe that we were biddable to like suit our own money they would regulate the amount of money we had so my tribe didn't get the money for Colorado until maybe the late or the early 50s and we were moved to our res in the like 1872 so I mean there was like over 50 years of harsh poverty maybe 70 years where people really struggled it creates like this whole era of harsh times and then when we do get the money it creates all this different politics within a, a tribe so there's so many complications trying to assimilate into this American culture you know I think there's still a lot of struggles there just kind of understanding because it's it's even hard for me to like keep my head up on all the policies <laughs> native people are like shaped by it's like you know I can see how it gets to that point where you just like almost don't want to deal with it you write in your artist statement about existing in two worlds and having to navigate that and it seems to sort of tie into the perhaps your your current body of work where you're mixing the traditional family photos literally overprinting it on the propaganda about yeah, America. Yeah, Would yeah. you talk about that a little bit? You know, I kind of 
knew about some of these archives we had. My mom, she's very much like the matriarch of a big family that I come from. So that creates a big, large, extended family. My mom was always very responsible and, you know, she was very smart and did a lot of good things. So I think when my grandmother passed away, she got all the photos. Before I came out to graduate school, my mom was like, hey, you know, we have these archives. You know, I see you are interested in these things and the art you look at. She's like, could you ever use these in some of your work? And I looked at them and they were just like really powerful. It was definitely a true depiction of my family and people from the uh, a period of like the early 1900s to about the 50s. And then at first, that's kind of the era I was really into. So I took a couple albums to school with me from my grandmother's side. You know, I didn't really know how I wanted to use them at first. I was just sort of like diving into experimenting, printing on different things and fabric and stuff. And there's this place called Scrap in San Francisco. I just went there looking for stuff to print on. Found a bunch of like deconstructed book covers and I just, it was like light bulb that went off. Oh, I can print these on the book covers. And at first, you know, before even thinking about infusing, you know, like identity onto like historical books, it kind of, I just needed to make the work and mm. I just printed them. And then when I was able to finally have it and sit there and look at it, it was really started to hit with me. Like, well, this is more of like a statement and a, a concept that can grow. And I just kept on going from there. And then I kept trying to find more book covers that became a little bit more, you know, suggestive of colonial powers. And then it kind of became this critique of text and image and persuasion and that whole propaganda that's used. I mean, it was through a lot of like studio visits, you know, a lot of trial and error. I have a lot of pieces that didn't quite, you know, make it, but, mm. you know, I've learned a lot from them. I started to understand the power of these portraits and then it kind of made me want to learn more about the portraits too. The project started to evolve not only with trying to find the right books and the right history and text, but then learning about my family and who certain people were and my lineage and like different bloodlines and how strong it was. And so for the, the photographs themselves, it seems like a lot of them are kind of formal portraits. Do you know the history behind those? I think what happened was somebody on my grandmother's side had an old Browning camera mm. and would uh, shoot a lot of the photos them herself. So a lot of them was developed by somebody in the family. A lot of pictures that happened back then in that kind of formal setting with this in our regalia is a lot of times, uh, you know, to make a little extra money, a lot of tourists would come through Indian country, you know, because the 40 runs right through my res, like from Denver all the way to Salt Lake. And, uh, it pretty much just like, I think some tourists sometimes, if they, you know, people would pose in their regalia in the photos and they could get copies of them or other ways like that too, just so people could kind of have a token of Indian country, you know, when mm -hmm. they're coming through. And so I know a few of them, of the photos we have are from that too themselves. But what's interesting is I have this, there's that album on my grandmother's side, which is the Sespooch family, the, the Utes, the Uncompagre family that comes from that side. But then I'm using a photo album from my grandfather's side, my grandpa. His name was Francis McKinley. He was sort of everything to me as far as what I wanted to learn and think about it because he was a pretty prominent man where I found out, you know, a lot about him through researching about him. And uh, I just, I learned that he developed a lot of the photos himself. He kind of like the timeline of the of the photos I'm talking about kind of run from like the early 1900s to about the 40s and that's like my grandmother's like album it's there's a lot of mystery behind it like there's a lot of you know not enough information sometimes to know exactly but then the, the second part with my grandpa's it was more of like everything he's collected everything he shot and so I knew that he sort of had this educated background and he's you know a very 
you know, he's like a leader in our tribe. So when I got to school, I started researching everything that I could find about him because I, I remember seeing Arizona State articles or just like paperwork that he'd write about, you know, being a dual native and all these things that I kind of faced, you know, that he'd write about in his own college publications. And then I didn't really find anything at Arizona State and one where he worked, but I ended up looking at the University of Utah and I found that he was part of this oral history project, uh, where it's pretty much just like the inner interviewed 12 different Ute men at the time in the 80s just to kind of learn about Ute culture and it was sort of an archive project with the Marriott Library at the University of Utah. I just, I found this 89 page interview that he had <laughs> is all him. And then I even found like voice recording of his interview. And it hit me like when I read it and I had to write my thesis paper, I was researching what he was writing, sort of nonfiction, fictional story of learning about the Utes mm. through like a vision but I realized that this is the first time I ever heard my like grandfather's voice. It's like I'm listening to it on a recording in wow. graduate school doing art. And then he pretty much just lays everything out from who his grandpa was and who his family was. And then all the photos that he had of the family and on my grandma's side and his side started to make sense. You know, like that's my grandpa Hosky. That's great grandpa Albert Cespooch in that photo. And now I'm starting to see the tree line because of his interview. And like I can kind of understand the purpose now of like these archives and how important it is to maybe finish his work. And then also like the idea of taking photos he developed and then screen printing them on the book cover. Just it's like this extra layer of work it's just become something really it's a huge project <laughs> yeah there's one photo that looks like kind of the poster for the post-colonial revenge exhibition of, yeah, is it your, yeah the boxer so i'm just breaking in here for a second to explain this image because um, if you haven't seen it already it's definitely worth looking at you can find it on his instagram on my instagram on his website which i'll put a link to in the show notes but just for reference it's a young Ute man with two boxing gloves on in a fighter stance with his right leg back, wearing this huge, beautiful headdress. And he's staring right in the camera and it's just an incredible image. So if you're a visual person, which likely a lot of you are, uh, just take a quick peek on your phone um, and then you can hear the story behind it. So the boxing one is really cool because that one was taken by my grandpa Francis McKinley and he developed it himself like I have the hard copy and everything what's cool about that one is that is a picture of my great great uncle his name is Ruben Sespooch so that would have been my grandma's little brother he was part of the Ute boxing team so we had like a boxing team on the reservation in the 60s he would compete with other boys and probably other Indian reservations that had boxing teams and my grandfather wanted to photo all of them and Reuben had the, the headdress on you know I have the one where he's definitely posed as the fighter and then there's another photo I have where all of them are laid out in the ring and then Reuben's in the middle again and they're with their coach and the coach's name was Chappie yeah, it's such a great image. I think that's one of the the, the layers to your work just tested is that the images are just gorgeous images. Like he definitely, as you said, was, was bringing his own artistic eye for it. You know, it makes more sense too for me as far as being a printmaker. I mean, there's so many, I want to say relationships, but like so many like, you know, photography and printmaking that, you know, they kind of, they can go hand in hand, you know, they like, you know, a lot of uh, photo processes transferred to printmaking and vice versa, you know, things. So I think 
it's kind of interesting to like know that he had such a passion for photography and then you know his youngest grandson is a printmaker and you know doing these things and stuff you know I think about that too that I always used to wonder like where did this all come from but you know I mean, it's within my family more than I think you know so you've got these photographs that you've you've manipulated you've enlarged you know some of them look maybe like five feet or four feet, something like that. They're big pieces, and then you hang them on the wall, and then you also paint directly on the gallery wall. Could you speak to, to that practice and sort of those those images yeah. and how they fit in with the whole experience? Yeah, I mean, I think I always, you know, my graphic quality of drawing and just my love for graffiti and wall mural painting that I developed in undergrad, you know, I just trying to find a place for it. So there's always that interest and love for the graphics that I do, but they just kind of developed over time. And how I started doing these sort of representations of uh, Virginia Coastal Indians in these graphics was uh, my last year of school. I took this class called The Promise of Monsters. We really like focused a lot of things around Frankenstein and like that whole idea of monsters and why they're created and like literature and art and popular culture, you know, like they have a deeper meaning than scary, spooky Halloween monsters. I had uh, sort of the readings about like political boundaries and like why certain people of color and marginalized, you know, indigenous groups were created in a way to create like monsters and savages and barbaric depictions of like people being scalped and like mm. all these reports of like monsters in the Newfoundland, these people then also very romanticized. And so I just started looking up savage depictions, like just to kind of print and do these things to create these kind of monstrous like representations. And then I found um, a lot of these ones by this Belgian printmaker named Theodore de Brie. He's like a 16th century etcher printmaker. And uh, he had pretty much made this whole kind of like an encyclopedia like of the European expeditions to America. And the thing is, he never actually really went. He was just kind of uh, reprinting this uh, colonist named John White's watercolors. So he had gotten the watercolors. And then for this encyclopedia, which was called the Brief and True Report of the Newfoundland of Virginia, he altered them to sort of fit like a European centric sort of perspective or sort of like a gaze, you know, like the European gaze of Roman statues and sort of very muscular and romanticized, mm. you know, all these images of natives to fit the European look. And that was like printed all over Europe at the time, you know, like that printing press was everything that was like our social media, you know, it was right. like going viral for the whole country was starting to see these images of natives and these representations that they started to believe you know over time our identity has been shaped by you know a european gaze throughout the beginning you know so mm -hmm. um and then to me you know i just i printed all those and you know native being very savage or being very beautiful and naked and things and i printed them and then through different studio visits and just like through the class it led me to like blow one up and paint it big because i was really into kara walker and her silhouettes and her like show you know that showing of that sort of african diaspora mm -hmm. And like yeah. that alternate almost fantasy world but also very savage I kind of created these narratives with these images and like when I blow them up they change by the way I do the graphics and I sort of add tattoos and different regalia that I want to create my own little narrative just to kind of separate them from just being directly what they were as a printing you know mm. so they become more of like a line graphic 
having the studio space and painting them and then doing the pieces on the book covers just sort of led me to starting to place some of the pieces over graphics, you know, and sort of like kind of creating a dichotomy of representation, you know, like, okay, here's the real, here's the fake, mm. and kind of comparing the rep- representations together to create the installation. Able to obscure certain parts with the pieces or having parts of the mural go into the piece, you know, I think that's where I want to sort of exist, you know, kind of put people in that in between. And it's, I feel like it's so important because the way we're taught history is that it's objective and it's factual. And so much of getting a broader view and a more advanced education is realizing that people were doing marketing and spins and fake news since the dawn of time. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, no, right? There's know? a formula for a lot of this media. You know, a lot of things, like I'm, I'm reading this book right now, it's called Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's about the Osage murders in Oklahoma where, you know, this tribe was the richest people per capita in the 1920s because they were removed onto a reservation with like huge mineral deposits and huge oil deposits Mm. and like they were placed there by the federal government and then eventually they were made rich because so many people would tap underneath the ground and and just the way the media would spin everything on them in the 20s like that I'm reading about you know like calling these natives rich like red millionaires and like oh something needs to be done about how rich these Indians are Uh. it's just crazy the manipulation of the press even a hundred years ago and I was in this chapter where they're talking about the Roaring Twenties, and we're one year off from that, you know, like right. hundred years ago, going back into the t- Roaring Twenties, you know. So I'm just like these things are, you know, the media spin. Yeah, like you just said, you learn that, you know, you sort of learn, and your eyes are open a little bit more. And then, like most people didn't know that a lot of that money is regulated. And I learned through, you know, even that Osage tribe I referenced in that book, you know, they had the rights to this money they allow they wouldn't allow full blood people to manage their money where they'd have to have an Indian agent come out and basically say you know I'm going to approve all of the money you pull out of your bank account mm-hmm. and um, they were only allowed to pull out a thousand dollars annually when they were millionaires you know like and so it's like keeping people poor systematically even yeah. if they have all the riches regulation and a lot of like policing you know that still happens listening to you talk about you know, all the history that you're doing in the archive and the research. What's your relationship to the fact that, you know, doing this history means dealing with a lot of harsh realities and a lot of histories that have been smothered and No, it's 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 heavy for sure, you know, and there's there's times where I think I struggle mm-hmm. in the studio dealing with certain things. I mean yeah, I mean, it's it's real to the point where it affects us all differently. You know, like some of the imagery I use with, you know, the archives of the people, like I don't really mention it too much, but there's a few in some of the pieces I have at in the show now where, you know, I lost those people this year, you know, mm-hmm. like some of those uncles and aunties. And that's something that I can only really think about, you know, and like it's kind of more something I carry. And uh, I, I don't know, I just I think like there's something that reminds me of how important it is and that you know this sort of sacrifice both mentally and physically to kind of get things done is what it might take too but I definitely try to take care of myself too in that sense right you know I have a good family that supports me and like you know knows what I'm trying to do and I I remind myself that constantly you know and kind Mm -hmm. of have a good support system as far as like you know my tribe and things so that helps but yeah there's moments where it's harder to, to understand why I'm printing this or something you know and I would guess though that the work that you're doing is it's good work and it's important work and that's got to be uplifting too you know that's got to be helpful in that 
I think that's what it is. It's kind of like, I don't want to sound like super sappy, but it's like, yeah, it could be very sad and heavy, but it's almost like it's just like a beautiful thing too, you know, like these things that like I create that I know that for me, a lot of our indigenous, I, indigenous belief is, you know, and this like these spirits and these people that help us and stuff. So I've always kind of think there's someone or some, these people can see that eventually, you know, or they'll know that what I'm doing is, you know, important to that. So Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, like I just always kind of remind myself of that and it helps. Yeah. Where can people find you if they want to know more about your work and see images of it that we've been talking about? Um, I'm in the process of updating my website, keysacolajr.com, on Instagram and things like, you know, Minomashikiki gallery representation. You know, I'm still kind of working on that and just sort of doing more exhibitions and shows well it's you're doing just incredible work i know that that good things are, are coming to you i'm sure for it because well, it's you. really thank great you. stuff and thank you so much for for sitting down and talking with me and being so open no, about everything in was, your work yeah no this is great and uh you know it helps me kind of like because these are you know my ideas and thoughts after the show and things you know it, it helps me sort of get get that stuff out and even you know referencing back to sort of how you deal with certain situations with art and maybe the concepts you know like these kind of talks and being able to kind of relay the story to a further like a, a larger audience you know I think that that helps you know a lot and just being able to sort of speak about what you're trying to do you know so I appreciate you giving me this space to sort of tell my story well that's our show for this week Tune in again in two weeks' time when my guest, Shayla Allery, will be answering your questions about the gallery world. So if you've ever wondered the best way to approach a gallery for representation, how galleries make money, or if it's a legal requirement for gallery directors to wear black, now is your chance to ask. To submit a question, head on over to the Pine Copper Lime Instagram and send me a direct message, or just be on the lookout for the polls in the story. However, if you prefer the old-fashioned method, you can definitely drop me a line at hello at pinecopperlime.com. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next time.